Welcome to the Beyond the Sermon podcast, where we take your questions from Sunday's teachings in order to form a dialogue about the scriptures and what God is teaching each and every one of us. Well, welcome to the Beyond the Sermon podcast. Here today is Sunday, May 8th. Today is Mother's Day, and uh, and I'm reminded here today of a of a of a quote by Louis Giglio, who who talks about the importance of of motherhood, and and as he talks about this, he reminds us that that motherhood isn't isn't just merely biological motherhood, but it's also adoptive and foster and 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 most importantly, I think uh, spiritual motherhood, right? Those uh, those spiritual mothers that are in our lives that have. Uh, stirred our affections for Jesus, have walked patiently alongside of us, and and encouraged us in our faith. And uh, and and Louis Giglio, he he talks about the role of of spiritual mothers, and he he talks about it's just that of encouraging and fostering faith um, in 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 each of us, right? And I I think today as we as we think about motherhood and what that means and what that looks like. Um, I, I think I'm I'm even uh, reminded and thankful for my my mom, my biological mom, but even all the spiritual mothers that were in my life, uh, of how they came alongside in important seasons and important moments and helped to foster and and encourage my faith. Uh, Giglio goes on to talk about even spiritual fathers and how fathers are to be a backstop for faith. How uh, in, in the role of father uh, we are to we are to be able to have this this confidence building part of faith that it's going to be okay. Uh, that that even though we take big steps of faith, that that something is going to catch us or, or reassure us there. And so I think it's just a beautiful picture of both spiritual fatherhood, spiritual motherhood, but especially today's on Mother's Day as we think about the important spiritual mothers that have been in each of our lives uh, does not does not have to be necessarily our biological mothers, but our spiritual mothers that have fostered and enabled uh, each of us to take steps of faith in Jesus. And so grateful for that. And uh, and, and on that, we were in Acts chapter twenty three, starting in verse thirty one this morning, all the way through twenty six thirty two. A significant portion, a significantly long story there in the book of Acts, as Luke is rec- recounting. Paul's arrest and imprisonment, his trial before Felix and before Festus. And we came to the main idea this morning that hope is too valuable to hide. And so with that, Paul could have any chance or he could have spun any other story, right? He's been imprisoned for two years. Felix is corrupt. He's not a good leader. He's not a just governor. Uh, he's looking for Paul to pay him off. He's corrupt. He leaves him in jail for two years as a political favor uh, to the to the Jewish power brokers. And then Festus takes over. And, and Paul gets an audience with Festus, and, and he, gets, he gets a chance to declare his innocence, but he could have he spun any other story. He could have told it any other way, but Paul gives an honest answer about the hope that resides in him because it's the hope that truly can transform our lives. And so we've got, we've got, got some great questions in here this week as we are wrestling through, chewing on a, a really a large chunk of Scripture. It's big, as I said in the sermon, because... Luke is recording a lot of dialogue, a lot of discourse in it, and so it's worthwhile to go back and read that. We didn't have time to dive into all of that this morning, but we wanted to see the main heart of this large chunk actually comes in 26, 29, where 
Paul again says, he answers to Agrippa, and he says, yes, Agrippa, I want you to be like me. Not imprisoned like me, unjustly, but I want you to be like me because I'm becoming like Jesus, and that is greater than anything else we could ever experience. And so so Paul gives an honest answer there. This comes off of the heels of our sermon last week, or our time last week, when Paul was approaching Jerusalem. He was making his way. He had, he had got to Jerusalem. He was worshiping with the brothers, and we talked about this idea that our lives tell a powerful story. And again, we see it this week. Paul's life tells a powerful story, not about what he can do, but about what Jesus is doing in him and through him. And so one of the questions that came in from last week, we want to just come back to here for this week, it asked this question. It's easy to praise God for the many blessings we have, but how do we praise him when all we can see is our hardships like loss of a job, loss of loved ones, health issues, loss of our home? How do we praise God in times of trial? I think the answer to this actually comes from uh, the, 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 beginning, the beginning place or the starting point. Is how do we praise God when we are in times of what we might call blessing or times of abundance? Paul will actually, he'll go on to say this in Philippians. Um, he'll say, I've known, I've known uh, Jesus in abundance and I've known him in need. I've known him in, in great blessing and I've known him in lack, right? Paul is literally referring to the things that this question is talking about, right? Our physical uh, blessings, our physical resources, uh, money, family, uh, homes, uh, health, all of those things. Paul's saying, I've known Jesus in, 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 in abundance and in lack. And yet what I found is that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, and so he goes on to say, I can endure, I can walk with Jesus faithfully whether I got whether I'm I'm walking through much or whether I'm walking in seasons of great hardship. And I think part of it is what we've seen in Paul's example along the way is that Paul continues to hold on to the truths and more importantly, not just the not just the abstract truths of the scriptures, but the, the lived truths of his faith experience. When he's watched Jesus come through, he's noted that. It's what he does when he gets to Jerusalem with James. He knows that he is facing hardship in Jerusalem. It's not a if, if, or maybe. It's a when it will come. He knows that he's going to face hardship in Jerusalem. And yet he responds with praise on the, on the front end. Let me tell you, brothers, what God has done. So uh, I think the, the call of being a Christian is not to endure hardship or suffering or difficulty, you know, like it's not happening. That's, that's, not, that's not it at all. I think even in the passage today, Paul appeals to Caesar when he gets in front of Festus. And Festus goes, if you hadn't appealed to Caesar, I would have set you free, 2632. Uh, but Paul appeals to Caesar, in, and you can, you can almost feel the anxiety that's in Paul in this moment. He knows that God's going to protect him, yet when he gets this moment, he wants to be set free. He wants to get to Rome, and so he appeals to Caesar, and he enacts this legal process that Festus can't undo um, because he's bound by Roman law now to send him to Caesar. But I think we can, again, we can see Paul's not just on some plane, you know, existential or uh, spiritual plane that he's above suffering. He's transcended suffering. No, Paul is, Paul is hurting. Paul is anxious. Paul, Paul is experiencing all that we experience, and we can see it in this one small moment in his request to go see Caesar. So, But I think Paul is able to endure in those moments because he has made it a habit uh, to track when God has provided, when God has, uh, in those times of blessing, right? I can endure all things. I can go through all things uh, because it's Christ who strengthens me. Uh, and whether I have, I have 
uh, a great amount or whether I'm in lack, whether I'm in plenty or I'm in sorrow, right? And so I think how can we praise God in times of how we can praise God in times of trial is that it, we need to make it a regular part of our practice to look for how God has provided. Write it down. Remember it. Keep tracking it. Keep looking for it. Um, because in times of hardship, it's easy to forget those things. And it's easy for our hearts to get led away from the truth that God truly is for us, that God is in our corner. We're just in a season of hardship. Then the other thing to remember is that seasons end. Seasons come to an end, whether it's on this earth or whether we are brought into the end of that season and we are greeted etern- into eternal life in the age to come here with Jesus in the next life, uh, so those seasons will come to an end. And, and so part of that is that enduring perspective. But none of this is to give it a trite answer to say, oh, enduring in hardship is easy. Paul does not ever say that. Uh, Paul does not ever give us that lived example either. Enduring in hardship is difficult. But I think it's why it's all the more important that we pay attention to Paul's example, that he praises God uh, continually. He fosters that response in his, in his heart. And, and so today, again, we saw this profound example uh, of Paul uh, get living faithfully in the midst of sorrow and hardship. I don't want us to underestimate the reality. Two years of being imprisoned unjustly. Roman prison is not is not a cakewalk. It's not a pleasant place to be. Um, even though he's a citizen, he's gonna he's gonna have more rights. But it's not it's not great, you know. And so we can't underestimate the the turmoil and the anguish that Paul was experiencing in prison in Caesarea for two years. And he knows that Felix is corrupt. He knows what's going on. You know, like Paul's a smart guy. And so I'm sure he understands the power dynamics of that age and goes, well, if I just pay Felix, well, then maybe I'll get out. It's what Felix wanted was money. Uh, Or if I tell him another tune, maybe he'll let me out. You know, like um, we understand that. And I think we can sympathize and empathize with Paul in that way. So what makes it all the more remarkable then is that Paul has known such great hardship and suffering, and yet he still says in Romans chapter 9, verse 3, I want to, if I could exchange my salvation for you to know Jesus, I would do that. I would endure suffering eternally so that you would know Jesus. And so this question comes in uh, with that. uh, They ask, is it bad to struggle with wanting a heart like Paul has in Romans 9, 3? It's hard to say I'd willingly give up in eternity with God under any circumstance. Amen. I'm with you. I don't understand how Paul could write those words. I think think more more than anything, Paul has continually seen the power and he's continually experienced the power of, of the gospel in each and every one of those churches that he's visited, planted, encouraged, and fostered. And so he's watching lives be changed over and over again. And I think even of this, I think Paul sees himself uh, in this role of spiritual father over those churches. And as a dad with three little kids, there's not much that I wouldn't exchange for my kids, right? Um, There's a sense of understanding the Father's love, our Father in heaven, his love for me when I became a dad, um, that I knew God loved me more than I ever could have understood before. But there, there was something different that I learned in this stage of life. And, and I think so many of us have experienced that before. And I think Paul, when he writes that in Romans, I think that's the perspective he's coming from, is this fatherly, I would give anything for you to know Jesus, even even if it meant that I was cursed, even if it meant that I was, uh, you know, 
uh, enduring eternal punishment so that you knew Jesus. It's a profound it's a profound expression of love and again points back to this idea that the love that fills us through the Father is a love that allows us to, to love our enemies. Man, if Paul is growing that much in likeness of Jesus, no wonder that he said to Agrippa, yes, I want you to be just like me. So, no, it's not it's not bad. It's not wrong to struggle and to go, man, I do not understand Paul and what he says in Romans 9.3. I do not understand how he could want to, to make that exchange or why he would want to make that exchange. I just could not fathom exchanging an eternal, glorious life with God under any circumstance. And it, it, part of it is because we've, we've tasted, we've tasted and seen how good uh, God is. And, you know, with that, we, we talked th- t- this morning about this idea of a transactional versus a transformational gospel. Uh, as we've seen how good God is, we're watching him transform our lives. This question came in. It says this, is the transactional gospel a false gospel? Is it possible to truly have faith in Jesus if one views him solely as an insurance provider? I think this is a fair question. This is a fair question. I know. I think I said in the sermon today of, I'm not, I don't want to, I'm not in the position to judge someone's salvation. I think, I think we need to be very cautious on that. I think what we are allowed to do and called into doing in Matthew chapter 18 is this idea of, going to a brother that's offended you. Jesus is talking about how we can resolve conflict amongst brothers and sisters. So Jesus following people, Christians. Um, so we, we are called to, to judge one another's spiritual behavior, it, not for the purpose of lording it over or uh, boasting in our behavior or belittling or shaming others' uh, sinful behavior. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to call us up and into righteousness. And so we have this, this, this continual expectation um, to, to, to lovingly call one another out of sinful behavior, right? And, and it's, that's the, the Matthew chapter 18 is this idea of how do we solve conflict between uh, brothers and sisters, those who are in Christ. And, and Jesus gives us the plan. And the plan is to go to your brother or your sister, uh, express what had happened, they acknowledge, repent, and forgive. You then respond in forgiveness to them, and you move on. That's the ideal. Uh, then Jesus gives us some escalation steps because uh, we're bad at this, and we're selfish, and we're self-centered, and we are preferential in our love and our forgiveness. And so Jesus gives us the escalation plan. The escalation plan is not the ideal. The ideal is that we are able to go to one another and work these things out. But I want to be very cautious and careful myself of judging or determining whether somebody is saved or not. What the Bible tells us is clear. In order to be saved, we make a profession of faith uh, in Jesus. We, we place our faith in Jesus. Uh, time and time again, uh, Acts chapter 4, uh, what is required for salvation? To believe in the name of Jesus. That's what's required of salvation. Um, and yet, you know, we are then justified. The process is, you know, we get, we, we are justified by faith. That is that justified or justification is this idea that God sees it as if it had never happened. Our sin had never happened, not because we didn't are all of a sudden clean, but it's because we take on Jesus's honor. Jesus is, he, he puts on his honor 
on us and bears our shame. So when God looks at us and we are justified, it's not our justification. It's the justification of Jesus who was sinless and he put on our shame on the cross in our act of faith. Uh, we are then, he is now giving us his posture of, or his position of honor so that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus and, and does not see our sin anymore or does not hold us accountable to our sin anymore. He does see our sin, but he doesn't hold us accountable to it anymore. And so so by faith, we are justified, and that is that we are then brought into the family of God. But then this idea, then we, we are then entering the process of sanctification, which is this big churchy word or theological word that means being formed in the image of Jesus, that we are growing in likeness of Jesus. And and again, if you read the New Testament, there's, there's, there are people, there are examples of people that do this well and consistently, and there are people that do this poorly and up and down, and, and they struggle. And, you know, so I think, I think I, I need to be careful of my heart. I don't want to judge somebody's salvation. My posture is that of, of grace. Um, we can judge fruit. We can judge behavior because we can see those things clearly. But the posture of someone's heart, only our Father in Heaven knows that clearly. But I think this is a legitimate question here in that is the transaction a false gospel? I, I don't know if it's a false gospel, but it's not a complete gospel. It, you know, and there's so much more to life in Jesus. Uh, and, and so if you if you honestly, genuinely put your faith in Jesus— but no one has come alongside to help you understand that there's something so much more. That's not your fault, right? If you're operating in the transactional gospel um, because no one has discipled you or helped you to see that there's so much more, um, I don't think that that's a false gospel, but it, you know, we are called into something so much more. And then I think conversely, maybe it's that we put our faith in Jesus and we got the insurance, you know, plan. We got the fire insurance. We got our ticket punched to heaven or to eternity. Uh, and, and yet we still just struggle with our own pride and arrogance. And so we continue to do life on our own terms and our own way. Again, is it a false gospel? I don't know. But I do know that if, that when we walk with Jesus, we experience more blessings and, and greater peace and comfort and hope, the more that we walk with him in the transformational work that he has for us. And so at some level, the transactional gospel, while it might not be false, it robs us. It robs us of joy. It robs us of blessings. It robs us of growth. It robs us of contentment and wholeness and joy and peace. And so there is a, there's a tragedy. I think what this question is getting at is that there is a tragedy uh, to simply settling for the transactional gospel. And so, um, you know, uh, I think we, we come to faith not having everything together, uh, yet we walk with Jesus and we see that there's always so much more that he has for us. And so let's not settle for a transactional gospel. Let's really walk towards a, uh, uh, the fullness of our salvation in Christ. And in that, you know, as we, we, as we talk about this idea that hope is too valuable to hide this question comes in, and I, and I just so deeply appreciate how vulnerable and uh, and uh, open that this question is. It says, hope is too valuable to hide, but my shame keeps, uh, even keeps me, uh, or my shame keeps even my hope in hiding, right? My shame prevents, there's that, that, that inward shame that we feel uh, for the things that we've done or the ways that we've been disobedient to God or the, just, the, just the temptations that we struggle with. We can often get into these cycles where I feel like no one else struggles with that, which is not true. It's not true. We've said it before that we just simply the very act of walking into church is an admission that I can't do it on my own. 
that I struggle, that I'm incomplete. Sometimes we like to say that, you know, when we come to church, everybody's got it together. The very act of walking into church or tuning into a service is the admission that we don't have it together. And so, but our shame does this, uh, shame forces us to hide. And that's what, that's what shame does. It forces us to hide. Um, So they go on to say, they say, I find myself thriving in inner peace, but shame keeps me from sharing the gospel and from loving my neighbor well. Um, they go on, they said, you know, you shared about four years of psychology was really just four years of therapy. Is this something we could all benefit from? Uh, does the church make resources available for, for counseling? Should we all go to therapy? Uh, is this part of, uh, disciple making? And, uh, and so, uh, take those real quick. Yes, the church does make resources and referrals, uh, for, uh, therapy, um, if you need that, if you're struggling to get counseling and you, and you need good clinical counseling, then we, we're here and we would love to help you with that. Um, and you can reach out to myself or Pastor Mark for that. Um, but I think it's part of the larger role of the body. It's why we believe in connect groups, uh, because each of those groups are, are part of it is to bear one another's burdens. No, we're not psychiatrists or psychologists in those groups. But for the majority of what we walk through in life, simply having good godly people in our corner is, is so sufficient. For 90% of what we walk through, having good godly people in our corner to give us wise counsel and encouragement to pray with us it is so helpful and so needed. And so the question here is, is it part of disciple making? Yes, it absolutely is. And so, um, yes, my four years of psychological training or psych, uh, you know, psych training at, at Trinity, it was part of it was Dr. Robinson, but it was also other people that were in my life that were helping me grow. They were listening to me. They were giving me good, wise counsel. They were giving me good, godly um, recommendations and advice and influence. And so, um, so yes, I believe in formal counseling as much as uh, the importance of that as, as, as anybody else. But I think, you know, there is, a, there is this call in disciple making to walk well with one another, bear one another's burdens as Paul will say in Galatians and many other places um, throughout throughout the New Testament, we hear this bearing one another burdens language. Um, That's part of being good godly counsel for one another, walking with each other. So, um, so yeah, you know, part of it is uh, how can we help one another in this way when we don't have to be licensed, you know, psychologists or psychiatrists. Uh, We we so quickly um, tend to, in our modern world, you know, default to the professional Right. In order to share the gospel, I have to be a pastor. I have to get a seminary education. Nope. Just talk about how Jesus has changed you. Uh, in order to to care for one another, I've got to you know I've got to go see uh, professional clinical counseling. Maybe, maybe that's a a, a a part or a step. But the the more sustainable step is uh, having good godly people in my corner, and so that's why we believe in groups so very very much. So yeah, love love this question. Love the vulnerability of it and just the confession of it. Right. Yes. Coming alongside of one another is a critical part of disciple making, uh, and bearing one another's burdens is a critical part of disciple making and a beautiful opportunity. And then the final, uh, we've got a final comment here. In um, I, I think I made a joke it was in second service. Um, sometimes I, you know, if you come to both services, you you know you hear some uh, they're, they're a little bit different each in each sermon. Okay, same main points, same main idea, same text, uh, but you know sometimes you get a, a little bit of a, a little something different in each one. And so in second service this this morning, I made a I made a joke about how they're going to talk about the transactional gospel. I got my ticket paid when Saint Peter you know meets me at the pearly gates of heaven. And then I, I made a comment. I said, I don't even know if they're going to be uh, pearly gates in heaven. Um, you know, uh, part of it is appealing back to this idea of 
the transactional gospel, these cultural images that we settle for. And so, um, so, so the comment came in and just said, hey, pearly gates are found in Revelation chapter 21, verse 21. And that it is true. Um, Revela- the pearly gates are found in Revelation 21, 21. But, um, you know, uh, I guess we, we can Bible nerd out here for a second. Um, I, I don't actually, I'm not sure that there are going to be pearly gates in heaven. Uh, that passage in chapter 21 uh, is referring to the new Jerusalem and the new earth. That's not heaven. Um, it, it, you know, when Revelation as an as a, as a entire book is written to foster hope in us, it's written to a peop, group of people that are being most likely persecuted under the Roman emperor Nero, who, if you know anything about Nero, he is just wild crazy, okay? Dude married, his own, married a horse, all right? And so he is just He's, he's just off his rocker, and he's persecuting the Christians. And so John is writing to Christians who are being persecuted under Nero, and he is saying, look, Jesus will be victor. Jesus will have the victory. And 21 and 22 are this beautiful end uh, encapsulation of that final victory. Uh, but technically, chapter 21 is referring to the age to come, uh, which when we think of heaven, what we what we need to understand about heaven is that it's actually a a, a holding place, or it's a middle place um, in that we are waiting for Jesus to come back. So the saints that have gone before, Paul says, you know, apart from the body is to be present with the Lord. So our soul spirit is present with the Lord in heaven as we wait for Jesus to come back. It's why he talks about in First Thessalonians chapter 4 that the saints that have gone before, that have fallen asleep before, when Jesus comes back, they will be caught up. Their physical bodies will be caught up in the air with Jesus and that, that they, will cut, they will go first, then the believers who are still on earth will then be caught up with Jesus in the earth. Believers will reign with Jesus for a thousand years, the millennial reign, and then after the millennial reign, final battle, um, uh, all of all of uh, hell and and all of the evil, of the earth is is caught up, cast in the lake of fire, and then the new age begins, and that's where we get our resurrected bodies, and we live on the new earth in eternity with God. That's actually our final hope. And all this is probably kind of technical Bible nerdy uh, kind of stuff. But, uh, but technically, when, when Revelation, when John is writing that, Revelation chapter 21, verse 21, is actually the pearly gates are not describing heaven. They're describing the new earth. And so, um, so there's this aspect that, that the pearly gates will be open there. And they're a gate that is open to, to the new Jerusalem. And uh, I love, I, I read this quote um, at one of our recent funerals and memorial services. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis, in the last battle, the final book of the Chronicles of Narnia, he talks about the unicorn uh, and how the, how the, the old, the new earth uh, looked so much like the old earth, but it was so much better, right? And the unicorn finishes this speech and he says, uh, come further up, come further in. Right. So what we'll experience on the new earth is it will be like the earth that we're on now, but it will be so much better. It'll be uh, completely complete. It'll be um, 100% whole, right? There'll be no sin, no sorrow, no pain, no suffering. And, and one of the ways into the new city of Jerusalem will be these pearly gates that John tells us will never be shut, will always be open. And, and why? Because only the righteous will dwell on the new earth with Jesus, those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life. And so 
So yeah, so I, I, I was more, I was making a joke there about this idea of more of the cultural conception that we bring to the transactional gospel. I got my ticket, St. Peter's at the pearly gates, and he's checking my ticket, when really there's something so much more for us. And even John, John expresses that in chapter 21. There's something so much better ahead. It's not even just this eternal life on some ethereal plane in the clouds someday. It is that God loves us so much that he is going to fully redeem the earth and fully redeem us, give us resurrected bodies, and we will dwell with him on earth. He will be our God. He will be in our presence, and we will dwell with him face to face in this age to come that will be like the age we're in, but with no brokenness, so much better. And again, I love Lewis's quote there with the, with the unicorn at the end. Come further up, come further in, draw into the goodness of who Jesus is. So um, love these questions. Love that we get to chew on the word of God together, and uh, can't wait to continue walking through the book of Acts with you next week. Oh,